Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And now, here's your host, Marco Santarelli. Hello, my friends, and welcome to another episode of Passive Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Marco Santarelli. Well, you know, there's been a lot of talk about housing, the economy, interest rates, especially when they're going up, and inflation. That is a, a big one, and it has been a topic of conversation for many, many months, as we know that inflation has reached 40-year highs, and it's affecting everybody. It's affecting housing, it's affecting assets, it's affecting our purchasing power, and, you know, it's an area of concern. So today, we are going to talk about all of those and maybe a little bit more with my guest, Dr. Frank Notaft, who is with CoreLogic. They are one of the biggest data aggregators in the country in terms of the economy and housing. So it's an interesting conversation. But these are the types of things that I think you need to keep a third eye on. You want to keep your radar focused on some of these things because right now a lot of this is tailwind for you as a real estate investor but you always have to know when the tide shifts because when that tailwind becomes headwind that's when you need to start making some changes in your investment plans and maybe even your investment strategy and certainly that's something that we can get into the weeds on in a one-on-one -on -one conversation with my team because it can become a little bit on the deep side, but also it's very custom to you. It really depends on your own personal situation in terms of your income strategy, investments, your goals, what you're investing in, what you hold, etc. But anyway, without further ado, let us get to today's interview with our guest, and I hope you enjoy the show. Well, it is my honor today to welcome Dr. Frank Notaf to the show. He is the chief economist for CoreLogic, America's largest provider of advanced property and ownership information, analytics, and data-enabled services. And I have to admit in full transparency, I am a client of one of their divisions. Dr. Frank does lead the economics team responsible for analysis, commentary, and forecasting in global real estate insurance and the mortgage markets. And with that, Frank, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me today, Marco. It's really my pleasure. It's uh, great having you on. I was looking forward to this because I know the content you put out is always insightful, deep, informative, and uh, I really enjoy your stuff. For those listening on the audio, not the video here, I just want to comment and compliment on your uh, tie. Purple is my favorite color, and you've got a wonderful bow tie that is uh, beautiful purple, so I love it. Oh, well, thank you so much, Marco. All right, well, let's dive in. So let me start with something a little more broad in scope. You know, we're around March of 2022, and you could say that we're about two years into this whole COVID mess, if you will. The thing with that is it's caused so many ripples in the economy. You know, there's been disruptions in supply chain, there's been migration changes, labor issues, and the list goes on and on. You know, this is all outside of any health-related issues and consequences. I'm wondering what you think the degree is that this is still impacting housing in the U.S. and the economy in general. Oh, it is still impacting the uh, housing market. And we see that with the um, record level of home price growth and the migration of households that we've seen across the United States. That's actually been one of the more dramatic elements of the pandemic. And I'll give you an example. Uh, the Census Bureau just released its latest estimates on uh, population by state uh, at the, um, you know, through 2021. And what we saw was that during the first 15 months of the pandemic, so that's from about April 2020 to middle of 2021, there was big migration shifts within the United States. The states of New York and California 
each lost 300,000 in population. And the states of Texas and Florida gained 300,000 in Texas, over 200,000 in Florida. Those are just a couple of examples of some of these big migration shifts that we've seen out of big cities, out of places with high cost of living, to places with lower housing density, less population, and places with a lower cost of living. So I just highlight some examples like that, but that's been dramatic shifts in where people live. And it's been facilitated by the fact that they can work from home. And it's been facilitated by their desire, their need, their preference for more space. So we've seen, at least in that first year of the pandemic, people moved out of high density structures, which generally are in the downtown center city. They moved out of the high rise apartment buildings, the high rise condos. They moved out to the suburbs. They moved out to the exurbs. They moved to a different part of the country where they could move into either buy or rent single family homes, preferably single family detached homes relative to the high rise apartments that they had been living in. Single family detached gives you a lot more space, square foot of living space inside the home. And it gives you social distancing from neighbors. And that was something that was in huge demand during the pandemic. And we continue to see those uh, ripple effects on the housing market. One big question that a lot of economists and analysts are trying to sort through is what happens with this work remote phenomenon that's been in place. Right. You know, prior to the pandemic, most estimates said, oh, maybe about 5% of the workforce worked remotely. Well, that increased multiple times during the pandemic. And the question is, what will we see once this pandemic finally subsides and people start returning to much more normal uh, life? Will we see everyone return to the office environment? Or is it going to be a very, very different type of office environment longer term, maybe with flexible working schedules, or maybe with a much higher percentage of the workforce that's permanently working remotely. And that's gonna have big implications, not just for commercial real estate, but also for residential real estate, especially where people live and where people work. Right, there's a lot to unpack there. And actually your last comment is something I was thinking about is what kind of relapse or backlash that might there be with all the people that have moved out of the, some of the larger cores, especially in the tier one markets, the larger markets out to the suburbs and exurbs. How many of those people do you think are gonna come back to repopulate some of that residential real estate that is more inner core? I would imagine that those properties have been hurt in terms of monthly rent and maybe even price. So I don't know if there's been much of a depreciation in price in the larger cities and inner core, but if there's a rush back because people want to actually go back, you know, what impact is that going to have on these markets? Well, I tell you, uh, Marco, that's what we saw in the first year of the pandemic. You know, this exodus from high-rise buildings, from the center cities, uh, moving out, and rents and values fell in many communities inner city, you know, uh, especially high-end, uh, high-rise uh, structures. We saw a lot of declines in property values and rents during that first year of the pandemic. Things started to change, though, 
as we got to uh, you know the middle of 2021 and later because um, people started to return to the city. In fact, they saw that things seemed a little more affordable than they had been in some of these high cost markets and rents and property values started to uh, pick up once again in the latter part of 2021. Now, sustaining many of these markets longer term is the fact that we do have uh, Gen Z, which you know are, are the folks in their early 20s now, coming out of school, starting jobs, thinking about where they may want to live longer term. And for uh, young adults, they want to be where the action is. <laughs> and where a lot of the action is in terms of social interaction and yeah. uh, events, that's still in the cities. It's not in the exurbs. So as Gen Z continues to come, you know, come out of school, graduate, and look for their career jobs, uh, many of them are looking to move into the city uh, to be where the action is, to be yeah. where the opportunities are, both for jobs, but also for uh, social events. Yeah, well, Gen Z is like a pig in a python. We've got approximately 80 million of these people that are now starting to leave home and they want a place to rent or maybe a place to buy. And so they're adding more demand pressure to the market that was already there. No, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So before we jump into that, just to go back to one other point you made, you know, you, you were talking about migration patterns between states, which, you know, certainly can affect markets. Florida definitely is a huge recipient, Texas, um, you know, many of the southern states. We already had strong demand pressure and lack of supply in these states. Now we're you know, stacking another 200,000, 200, 300,000 people coming into these states, which has certainly been driving prices up. We've seen that over the last 12 to 24 months. Do you think that is going to continue or is that something that is transient? And these people that have moved to those states, are, some of them are going to move back out, back to where they came from or maybe choose other locations. And this could be partly due to uh, mobility in the job market, you know, labor being so much more mobile today, but just wanted to get your thoughts on that. I think a good portion of it is going to be permanent. Now, there's no question some of it is transitory, uh, temporary move because of the course of the pandemic. And in some cases, their employer will say, gee, I, I really need you to uh, be back in the office. We'll work out a flexible work schedule, but I still need you in two days, three days a week. So, you know, in those cases, you know, people will need to uh, move and be closer to where their job requires them to be. Uh, but in many cases, I think people have relocated permanently. And in those cases, even if their employer says, no, I want you back in the office, they'll say, oh, well, you know, it was good to know you. No, thanks. I'll find you another job here. Right. Uh, and that's part of this so-called great resignation that we have heard so much about over the last year where quit rates are up significantly, and many employers are having a lot of challenges retaining skilled workers and hiring skilled workers. So that's an interesting point. How is that going to affect housing? Well, I think it adds to the demand, especially for larger homes, because if you want to work remotely, that means you need to have additional space so you have the office at home. And if you're spending that much additional time in your home, well, you probably want a bigger kitchen, yeah. <laughs> a bigger, you know, bigger restroom, <laughs> or just more space elsewhere in the home because you're spending so much of your time there. 
And that is actually what we've seen over the last year. And if you look at how home builders have responded to these changes in consumer preferences, what we've seen is that over the last year, the average size of new, new homes built has gone up in terms of size, in terms of square foot of living space. That's up over the last year because builders have recognized that demand, that need that uh, home buyers are looking for. So we're talking about, uh, well, at least we've mentioned it a few times, supply and demand. And that's been part of the conversation a lot here over the last, let's say, three to six months. I, I've been talking about it more on the show. I've been listening to other people in the industry talk about supply and demand the lack of equilibrium. Maybe comment on what you see happening right now in terms of housing supply, housing demand, and the trends, because that really plays, I think, heavily into decisions being made as far as where to invest as a real estate investor. Absolutely. And you've probably heard this comment about economists. How do you train an economist? You teach a parrot to say supply and demand. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that, and in truth, it is some of our favorite tools that we like to, to look at. And that's, uh, in large part, what's been driving some of the trends in the marketplace. It's what's been driving the 20% rise in home prices that we've seen in our national CoreLogic Home Price Index. And in some markets, the price growth has been even greater, 30%. Yeah. 30% in Phoenix, 30% in Austin, Texas. 30% in Boise, Idaho. And that's, again, reflecting this imbalance between demand and supply. And some of that demand is coming from these uh, migratory shifts, these population shifts. I didn't mention the state of Arizona, but Arizona comes right after Texas and Florida in terms of population growth. Arizona had 100,000 increase in population over the past year, number three uh, of all the states in terms of population growth in uh, the past year. Um, many of them are going to Phoenix, going to Tucson, and they're going to other communities in Arizona. But that's, that's a huge increase in demand. And you know, builders are trying to step up and provide that additional supply. So when we look at, at um, new home construction across the United States, it's no big surprise that much of it is concentrated in southern states, especially in those states that have seen the largest amount of population growth. In fact, Marco, uh, of, the, of the 10 metros last year that had the largest increase or the largest number of new home sales, the 10 largest metros, four of the 10 were in the state of Texas. Four of the 10. <laughs> Top of the list, is the Dallas-Fort Worth Metro, second is Houston, then comes San Antonio and Austin. Those were the four metros in Texas that were in the top 10 nationwide in terms of the number of new home sales last year. Uh, Phoenix was in the top 10 too, just doesn't have to be in Texas. Yeah, wow. <laughs> Phoenix, uh, Tampa, Orlando were in the top 10 as well. Again, Florida was the number two state for attracting population growth. So let me flip that question around. If you look at the states that had net losses in population, in other words, outbound migration, I'm still seeing prices increasing for the most part. Like take California example, last year, as I understand, it was the first year in a very, very, very long time that we actually had a true net negative 
uh, migration. But prices are still going up virtually everywhere, and it's estimated to still go up somewhere between 6 to 9 maybe 10% this year. I have to imagine that's largely, if not entirely, being driven by the lack of supply that is still in the system in these local housing markets. Is that the case? Oh, absolutely. Uh, there's a huge uh, shortage of uh, homes in uh, California, especially for affordably priced homes. It's at lower price tier, homes price, you know, roughly median price or lower, um, where there's just a, a shortage of inventory. And uh, that's where you see the strongest need and the strongest demand. And that's continuing to uh, push prices up. Now, you know, if we, we, if we look at migratory <laughs> trends within California, what we do see, for example, in the SoCal region, we see that there's, there has been um, a shift in population with people moving out of downtown LA. And where are they moving to? Well, if, if you want to stay in SoCal, you move out to Riverside, San Bernardino. You know, the uh, cost of living is one half <laughs> what it is in Los Angeles. Uh, just in terms of the home prices. And you can still stay in the SoCal area to be close to the amenities, to be close to other family members. That's important, especially if you have the opportunity to work remotely or work a flexible schedule. It's one thing if you need to commute to the office five days a week in downtown LA versus maybe commuting maybe twice a week. Well, then if you're commuting just twice a week, being in Riverside or San Bernardino, where the price of housing is one half what it is in Los Angeles, looks a lot, a lot more attractive. And so that is what we've seen. We've seen these shifts outside of the you know, really densely populated areas to some of the suburban communities, still close in, but that tend to be a lot more affordable and where you can buy just a lot more home for the money. Now, you're right, we have seen prices still continue to rise in Los Angeles and San Francisco, but a lot slower than uh, what we've seen in other markets. Uh, a lot slower than uh, prices are up in LA, but a lot less than they are up in, in Orange County, a lot less than in Ventura, a lot less than Riverside and San Bernardino. Um, but they are up. But if you put it in terms of comparing it with what happened with inflation, Last year, inflation was up around 7% in the United States last year. So even if home prices are up 7 8% where you live, that means you, you're just keeping up with inflation. You didn't gain, in terms of real inflation-adjusted, home value. And that's what we've seen in a lot of densely populated communities in high-cost markets in LA, San Francisco, Seattle, um, New York, Chicago. We saw prices were up, yeah. But when you measure it against the inflation yardstick, basically the values were just barely keeping up with inflation right. last year. I'd like to uh, touch on inflation here in a couple of minutes. I, I want to kind of close the loop on a couple of things here. If I'm a real estate investor or, or anybody listening to the show right now as real estate investors are listening to this, you know, strong demand, lack of supply, these migration patterns are, in my opinion, tailwind. They're, they're helping us out being in the market or getting into the market. I'm having a hard time seeing what kind of headwinds there might be today or coming up. If so, if I was a real estate investor, what should I be looking out for or watching in the years to come in my best interest as an investor? 
You mean in the residential market? In the residential space, yeah. Well, uh, you know, things to, to you know, keep an eye on is whether or not markets are getting frothy. A local market is getting uh, overvalued. You know, the economy is doing very well right now. House prices are up really a lot. But what happens if it turns out that the Federal Reserve has to be a lot more aggressive in terms of restricting monetary policy in order to fight inflation. Suppose the Fed sees inflation as running hot throughout 2022 and maybe early 2023. Well, the Fed's gonna to have to jack up interest rates a lot more. So if they jack up interest rates a lot more than we all are expecting, and if they do it sooner than we expect, then that means that um, it could really put a chill on the housing market. And these home prices that are up 20% or more in some communities over the last year may suddenly take a real jolt. They may stop appreciating. And in some cases, in some communities, they may come down. So that's something to keep an eye out for. Um, you know, is the local market that you are working in or looking to invest in, is it overvalued? How much is, of it is at risk if there is an interest rate shock that perhaps even triggers a recession? I mean, this is something we could probably debate, you know, for days with 10 different economists. In my mind, there's kind of a tug of war or an arm wrestle between the imbalance between supply and demand and interest rates going up. You know, the question is, is who's going to win? You could raise rates. I mean, we're already seeing it, and there's probably going to be four rate hikes this year. But I come of school of thought or the belief that the Fed has painted themselves into a corner and they can only raise rates so much without crippling the economy. And they certainly don't want to hurt the housing industry because it makes up you know, a very large percentage of our GDP. So yes, rates, I think, will go up, in my opinion, probably for the next couple of years. But the question is, is how much could they possibly raise rates before they jeopardize you know, the US economy and really just affect jobs and housing and everything else? Well, that's a concern among a lot of us economists. Will the Fed make a policy mistake? Will they perhaps act too swiftly and too harshly and trigger a recession, even though perhaps they didn't intend to? And that's a policy mistake. Now, Chair Powell uh, certainly remembers uh, a lot of the economic pain that occurred in the early 1980s under Chair Volcker, right. who uh, was confronted with double digit inflation. So the inflation rate when Chair Volcker uh, took office was about double what we are seeing right now. And uh, Paul Volcker put in uh, you know, really uh, intense shift in the monetary policy regime at the Fed and led to double digit interest rates. We had the Fed funds target over 20% for a period of time. Mortgage rates got up to 18% for 30-year fixed rate mortgages. A lot of pain and a lot of pain felt throughout the economy, but especially in the housing market. Now, I don't think it's going to come to that with Chair Powell. The inflation rate is only about one half of what it was when uh, Paul Volcker uh, took over as chair of the Fed. Uh, nonetheless, we could see some much more significant increases in the Fed funds target in the coming uh, two years. 
in order to wrestle inflation and bring it down to the Fed target. The Fed target is 2% per year. Uh, we're running at about 7% or maybe a little higher right now. So we're clearly well above that. And, and that question is, how tolerant will the Fed be of inflation running hot uh, for uh, you know, how long in 2022? Do you think it makes a difference that today compared to back in the early 80s with Paul Volcker, that we have $9 trillion on the Fed balance sheet, $2 trillion of that is mortgage-backed securities, and we need a way to be able to affordably, if that's a, a possibility, affordably pay that debt or at least the debt service on that debt. So raising rates to me is like you know shooting yourself in the foot. Well, um, you know, it'll slow the economy, uh, that's for sure. And that's, that's typically a page in the Fed playbook. Yeah. If inflation's running hot, then that means we've got to slow down the economy. We want to slow down demand relative to supply. So we're coming back to demand and supply once again. That's the page right out of the Fed playbook in order to reduce inflation and in, in order to reduce the pressure on prices, we got to slow down demand relative to supply. And you slow down demand by jacking up interest rates, that'll uh, reduce the inflationary pressures in the economy. So since we're talking about inflation, I know you don't have a crystal ball. We would all love to have crystal ball. We'd be billionaires. But if you were to make a prediction on what the real rate of inflation might be over the next 12 to 24 months. What would you say to that? Gee, over the next 12 months, I'm afraid that we're still going to see about 4% inflation. So I guess the good news is that it's less than what we have right now, <laughs> 7%. Okay. Uh, but it's still clearly well above the 2% target that the Fed has uh, announced, right? So, so I think we're probably going to run 4% over the next year, uh, less in 2023. My concern is that it could take us till 2024 before we get back to a 2% target. Will the Fed be patient that long? Are they willing to let inflation run above its target for that long a period of time? If not, the Fed's going to jack up rates sooner, perhaps trigger a recession, and perhaps have um, you know, effects across the economy, but especially in the housing market, because it will push up mortgage rates. Do you foresee a recession in the next couple of years? I mean, we've been running hot for a very long time. We have, we have been. Employment has not gotten back to the level it was pre-pandemic, even though the unemployment rate is almost back to that level. So the unemployment rate in January was 4%. Back in February of 2020, the last full month before the pandemic was declared, um, the unemployment rate, rate was 3.5%. Mm. So we're almost back to that level. And I do think that the economy is going to grow strongly in 2022. And we will see the unemployment rate get back to about 3.5% somewhere toward the end of this year. Uh, toward the, In the second half of the year, we'll see it get back to that 3.5% level. So that's, that's great. The labor market looks great. Um, so I don't think we'll see a recession at all this year, even with the Fed pushing up interest rates. Um, I think it's unlikely in 2023, uh, but it does depend how high inflation is running and how aggressive the Fed has to be to take steps to uh, reduce the inflationary pressures in the economy. I sometimes question the 3.5% you know, unemployment rate because there are a lot of people, correct me if I'm wrong, 
that have essentially checked themselves out of the labor market. You know, they're not employable, unemployable, choose to not be employed, and they're just doing other things elsewhere, or maybe just living off unemployment insurance, whatever it might be. So how real is that three and a half percent? Well, it's, it's pretty real, especially if you uh, talk to employers who are looking to hire. I guess. You know, they're finding uh, that uh, it's really hard to fill the vacancies that they have even when they offer additional compensation and benefits. So it is a very tight labor market, but you're also absolutely right that the employment levels are still below what they were pre-pandemic. And some of it is that there are older baby boomers who decided to take retirement, perhaps retire sooner than they were planning on because they didn't want to deal with with, um, uh, working during a pandemic. some of the reduction in employment is, you know, older baby boomers who have retired and, and left the uh, labor force, at least temporarily. But some of it is also um, uh, you know, young mothers who are staying home because their kids in many places are still at home uh, and not back in the classrooms. So that's affected labor force participation, especially among uh, young mothers. And I think it's going to take a while before they feel uh, comfortable uh, to come back into uh, labor force as much as they had in the past. Yeah. So quick point about mortgage rates. Well, so we're seeing mortgage rates going up and they'll probably continue to go up for the short term, the foreseeable future. I mean, they've gone up twice on me already on, on a refi and I can't seem to catch up to it. But at some point, I'm thinking there might be a bit of a tipping point where mortgage rates get to a point where housing starts to plateau. I don't know what to call it. I want to say cool off, but I don't want to imply that, you know, uh, property values are going to come down because I still think demand is far, far outpacing supply at the moment that we're not going to see prices drop because there's always going to be somebody who can afford to buy in the various markets around. Where do you think that tipping point is in terms of mortgage rates or, or is that just a really impossible question to answer? Well, I, I would put it this way. It depends how quickly rates go up. If we see a gradual rise in mortgage rates, then we could see mortgage rates gradually move up above 4%, up to 4.5%. And certainly the housing market will slow, but it doesn't necessarily trigger a recession if that uh, increase in mortgage rates is stretched out over two years or longer. Mortgage rates still currently for 30-year fixed rate are still just below 4%. Now, the average 30-year fixed rate mortgage rate in the decade prior to the pandemic, should ask, do you know what it was, Marco? The average in the decade prior to the pandemic, the average rate for 30-year fixed rate? 7%? A good guess. It was higher, (laughs) higher than, than it is right now. Not that high. So between 2010 and 2019, for a prime credit, for a prime credit borrower for 30-year fixed rate mortgage, the average rate was about 4.1%. Now, during the pandemic, you know, we got down below 3% for most of the time. Uh, mortgage rates were at rock bottom levels. Now they're up, but they're still below 4%. So in, in my uh, scorebook, mortgage rates are still low. <laughs> Yeah. Sure, they're not as low as they were last year. Uh, they're up, no question about it. But compared to where rates have been pre-pandemic, 
rates are still really pretty low. Now, if rates should get above 4% in the next couple of months, if they get up to 4.5% this year, well, then I'm, I'm really concerned that we're going to see a slowdown and perhaps a recession in the housing market, uh, maybe not the economy, but in the housing market, because that's a very steep rise in mortgage rates over a very short period of time and puts mortgage rates above where they were pre-pandemic. However, if the Fed is much more gradual, rates gradually creep up, don't get above 4.5% for, I don't know, maybe two years, well, then I think it'll be a much more of a soft landing. We'll see a little slowdown in housing activity, but no recession. Yeah, it's a tight wire that they're walking because they can't be too hawkish or dovish because they're they got to control inflation while at the same time not crushing the economy. So I, I wouldn't want to be in their shoes <laughs> at this point in time. Bingo. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, the thing about the rates that I was thinking of is, you know, as the rates continue to go down, property values continue to go up because the rates lead to better affordability and that affordability allows people, more people to get into the housing market, which that demand pushes prices up. So I like to say, or at least like to think that the increased value in housing is baked into the cake because we've had lower and lower rates. So if mortgage rates start to go up, you know, one or two things that can happen. Housing prices have to come down to coincide with that rate increase, or we just get to a point where fewer people can afford housing and we dry up that demand and we reach a point of equilibrium and the housing just stays where it is, whatever that price level might be. So I agree with you, Marco. It's a real challenge. If mortgage rates go up with home prices being up as much as they are, it really erodes affordability, in particular for the first time home buyer. So, you know, just thinking about it very simply, if prices are up 20%, then your typical first time home buyer has to have a nest egg that's roughly 20% larger than it was a year ago because they got to make the down payment, closing costs, and have a little cash in reserve. Um, so, that nest egg's got to grow 20% in one year as well. Now, if you layer on top of that, higher mortgage rates, then that means not only is the nest egg got to be bigger, their income has to be substantially higher too in order to manage those additional, a higher level of monthly principal and interest payments. So it's a real challenge for first-time home buyers. And I, and I don't want to say it's not a challenge for the, the repeat or the trade-up buyer. It's challenging for them too. A big difference though is that the existing homeowner has seen this enormous increase in home equity wealth over the last uh, couple of years. And they, if they are looking to trade up, they can always sell their home, take that Boku amount <laughs> of home equity wealth that they have and use that as the source of their down payment to buy their next home. So then the affordability impact on an existing homeowner who's looking to trade up or maybe uh, uh, downsize is very different. Uh, than the, the pinch that the uh, first-time home buyer is seeing in the current marketplace. Yeah. Now, again, first-time home buyers, if they've been fortunate, they've seen their incomes go up 20%. Maybe they invested well or, or bet well in the stock market. <laughs> so, so their uh, nest egg go up 20%. I hope that's the case. For those prospective first-time home buyers, they're well-positioned to buy. Unfortunately, most first-time home buyers will not be in that position. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> the other thing I want to mention um, is, and, and I, I agree with you with you know higher interest rates 
generally we see cap rates rise. And so, you know, if you're an investor and you're thinking about investing in residential real estate, you know, some of the things you want to think about is what's happening to uh, cap rates uh, and what's happening with the rental flow, the cash flow that you would get on an investment. Uh, that also is what determines value. So not just higher interest rates or higher cap rates, which would reduce value, but perhaps rents are rising. So if rents are rising sufficiently so that your net operating income is growing as fast or faster than uh, cap rates are rising, property values could still rise. And indeed, one thing we've seen in the rental market is that rents are up a lot in the last year. Operating costs are up too. Operating costs are up too, but rents are really up. So at CoreLogic, we have a single family rent index. So we can um, measure single family rent growth. And what we've observed over the last 12 months, average across the country, is that single family rents are up 12% in the United States. And in some markets, they're up a lot more. But as on average across the U.S., 12% increase in single-family rent. Yeah, the reports and the data that I'm looking at show the exact same thing. Very, very strong. Some markets, you know, 20% plus. In fact, some of the markets that I'm in, that I have property in, I've seen 20% and greater price increases. What's interesting about the number you just gave, the 12%, that is consistent with a recent survey that I was looking at where those tenants that have been renewing their leases have shown 13% increase in their income over the previous year. So they are making more money. People are getting raises and, and having higher incomes. And you can see that as the new rental applications are coming in, they're showing that their incomes are up 13% on average. So that's pretty consistent. At least that's encouraging. But for anybody trying to get into the market, it's going to be tough. Oh, absolutely. That's certainly an encouraging sign, especially if it's just you know an individual applicant who's seen their income rise that much. Now, in some cases, you know, if it's a couple, it may be that uh, one of the couple maybe only worked part of the year in 2020 because of the pandemic, because the restaurant was closed, or you know the retail store was closed, or whatever it may be. So, some of that percentage growth in income could be re uh, reflecting the fact that 2020 was just really a lousy uh, year for jobs and for income. So, but if it's a real increase of 13% for the tenant applicant, wow, that's, that's great news. That means that they uh, are well positioned to be able to afford that higher rent. Well, they don't have to upgrade or downgrade. Their lifestyle is gonna stay pretty consistent. Absolutely. So let's just wrap up with a couple of questions since we're talking about, you know, rents and rent growth and whatnot. If you were to forecast, I don't know if CoreLogic does this, but if you were to forecast where rent growth is going to go over the next year in terms of new homes and resale homes, what would your forecast be in terms of rent growth? We're, we're still expecting some pretty strong rent growth over the course of the next year. As I mentioned, over the last 12 months, we've seen rents on single family rise about 12%. On apartment uh, rents, uh, high-rise apartments, they're up maybe even a little bit more than that in terms of percent growth over the last 12 months. There is still a um, relatively low rental vacancy rate in the rental market. And so you've got a low rental vacancy rate and you've got um, 
increasing numbers of Gen Zs coming into the marketplace and forming households, there's gonna be some strong demand for rental homes, whether it's single family or whether it's multifamily apartments. So between that strong demand and the very low vacancy rates, that's gonna to continue to um, press rents higher in the next year. I don't, I'm not projecting a 12% rise in, in rent next year, but I do think it will continue to run much higher than the overall inflation number. So we, you know, we could still see rents rising somewhere in the maybe five to 7% range over the next uh, 12 months. Likewise, we're expecting uh, home prices to continue to rise too, but not as rapidly as in the last 12 months. So in the last 12 months in the CoreLogic Home Price Index, we've seen home prices up 19%, close to 20% in our national index. We do expect home price growth to remain strong here in the first part of 2022, but then moderate over the course of the year with prices up from December to December, roughly about 5%. So again, really strong growth, double-digit growth, the first several months of 2022, but then slower growth in the second half of 2022. Why? Because I do think the erosion of affordability for home buyers will finally start taking a toll between the higher home prices and now higher mortgage rates. And that'll start to really take a bite out of home buyer activity in uh, the fall and as we get toward the end of the year. And that's what leads to that moderation in home price growth. Right. And even with those predictions, it continues to show that housing is still a very strong inflation hedge. It, it is. And, you know, I tell you, it's, it's remarkable how low the vacancy rates are. We are at a generational low in housing vacancy rate in the U.S. That's a sign of an underbuilt housing market. And if you have an underbuilt housing market, home prices and rents are going to continue to rise and rise probably a little bit faster than inflation. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So here's my last question, because you actually answered my last question without me asking you. <laughs> so, so I'm going to throw one at you here. You mentioned Gen Z multiple times, and I'm you know kind of keeping my eye on you know that demographic. But what about Gen Y? What impact are they having right now and will continue to have in housing you know, they were the pig in the python prior to Gen Z. So what impact are they going to have? Millennials are having a huge impact already. So when you look at the millennial cohort by single year of age, so the, the oldest millennials, they're turning like 40 right now. But if you look at it by single year of age, the biggest number of uh, millennials are those that are aged around 30, 31 years of age. That's kind of like the peak of uh, the millennial cohort. Well, that's the prime age of transitioning from rental into home ownership. So that's where we typically see the biggest numbers of first-time home buyers. And in fact, the median age of a first-time home buyer in the US is, a, is about 32, 33 years of age. So we've got this really large number of millennials who are just transitioning at this time from rental into first-time home ownership. So they're going to have a big impact as well and are going to be a powerful headwind continuing to support home price increases in the coming uh, couple of years. Interesting. 
Very good. Well, let's wrap it up. Do you have any final comments for our audience who are mostly uh, real estate investors from mom and pop all the way to professionals before we talk about core logic here? You know, um, we've seen really strong single family investor activity in the marketplace over the uh, last uh, year. And single family investor activity uh, dipped early on in the pandemic, and, and no surprise because there was so much uncertainty with the economy, with the housing market, is you know, house prices going to collapse? You know, you couldn't evict tenants. You know, gee, who would invest in housing if you can't evict, evict tenants? Right. So, you know, single family investor purchase activity really plummeted in the early months of the pandemic. What is so interesting is that as we got to the end of 2020 and into the beginning of 2021, things really started to turn around. And investors made up for that lost time in 2021, and they came back and they increased their purchase activity in the single family marketplace. So single family investor purchases in 2021 were the highest that we have seen in over a decade. And the uh, portion of it are investors who are, are investing for the long haul, but some of them are investors who are looking to make improvements and then flip the property. And very interesting, when we did analysis on CoreLogic data, what we found was that roughly about 20% of the investors are these flippers. They're making some home improvements, they are making investments, and then within six months, they've resold a home to either a home buyer or, or you know, someone else. But then they're still back in the market. They're out looking for their next rental or their next purchase. So they're still in the housing market. They're just adding more inventory, hopefully, to, to the housing stock. Which, and better quality. Yeah, better quality. With better quality. And which could be argued that a lot of that distressed inventory is pretty much dried up. So now we're having to rely on home builders to make up that inventory that we don't have. Well, absolutely. Uh, there's a big need for home builders to continue to step it up now. 2021 was a very good year for single-family home building. It was the largest number of single-family homes built in the U.S. since 2007. So that's, that's great. That's great. But we need even more. We need more single-family homes. Uh, we need more attached homes as well because the attached home market, the townhomes, the row houses, they tend to be more affordable. And so we need to also build to that entry-level segment as well who can afford to uh, transition to home ownership with a townhouse, a condominium, a row house. Yeah, for sure. Frank, this has been amazing. Thank you for your time. You've been very generous. Please share with our listeners, where can they follow you, find your articles and any other content that you want to share and let our audience know? Oh, yeah. And I've really enjoyed our time together, Marco. So Twitter, I'm at uh, at Dr. Frank Notav. And you can follow a lot of the material CoreLogic puts out at CoreLogic Inc. Inc. And then we post a lot of material on our website, on our web pages. So you can go to corelogic.com backslash intelligence. And that's where we put up a lot of our intelligence research blogs that describe different trends and findings that we have on the housing market. In addition, uh, what you'll find there is some of our special reports too, like our home price index, our loan performance indicators, and our single family rent index, and our home equity report. Those will all be up on the CoreLogic web pages. Perfect. And I'm going to make sure that all of that is in our show notes and on our website. 
So it's easy for people to find it, click and go. Also, your last name is actually spelt N-O-T-H-A-F-T. You don't need to write that down. I'm going to put it in the show notes, but it is pronounced Notaft. So I uh, don't want people to try and search and find you and then they can't find you. <laughs> yeah, thanks for that clarification. You're absolutely right. Yes. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> thanks, Marco. Good stuff. Well, Frank, thanks for coming on. We'll probably uh, you know, have you on in the next six to nine months just to see where we're at with housing and what changes have happened. Hey, that's excellent. I look forward to that, Marco. All right. Well, thanks for coming on and we'll talk to you soon. Okay, same here. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I think it was great. I like covering this economic and housing information because sometimes you have to look at the big picture and just see where markets are headed and what's going on in the economy and in the uh, macroeconomics. So that's an important thing. But anyway, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Download your free report on our website, The Ultimate Guide to Passive Real Estate Investing. It is free. It's been downloaded probably 20, 30,000 times now. Great primer for real estate investing and it'll help point you in the right direction if uh, you're looking for some guidance. But anyway, there's more in there than just basics. That is it for today. If you want a strategy session with my team of investment counselors, by all means, go to our website at noradarealestate.com and just request your free strategy session. One of my team members will get back to you within 24 hours. If you have a question about real estate investing, go ahead, send it to me. I will cover that in an Ask Marco episode. I am due to do a couple of them here very, very soon, but I love the questions. Some of them are great, very insightful. Remember to subscribe, just click that button. It'll only take you one second. Spread the word with your friends and family about the show because we want to help other people understand real estate investing, the economy and personal development. That is it for today. Thank you for tuning in and we will see you all on our next episode. Are you having a hard time finding great investment properties? Unfortunately, the best deals are rarely found locally. Successful investing begins with the right properties in the right markets. Norada Real Estate provides everything you need to invest in the best deals across the U.S. Our simple, proven system will help you create real wealth and passive monthly cash flow. Get your free copy of the ultimate guide to passive real estate investing at noradarealestate.com slash guide. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com slash guide. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate legal, tax, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. For distribution or publication rights and media interviews, please contact the host.